Hello everyone and welcome back to the Future Tech for Education series on the EdTech podcast. This week we are looking at personalised learning. Personalised learning can mean different things to different people, taking in everything from technical platforms such as adaptive learning to pedagogical concepts such as flipped classrooms to simply a more learner-led approach. Let's say what it's safely not is 30 children in a mixed ability class all turning over the page at the same time. In the last weeks of 2017, the concept of personalised learning went through some interesting evolutions. First up, math blogger Dan Mayer and EdSurge columnist Mary Jo Madder put out an excellent podcast questioning the core assumptions of personalised learning with math. Next, EdWeek staff writer Benjamin Herald ran an article entitled The Cases Against Personalised Learning, which investigated the confusing context around this mammoth term and the limited evidence yet garnered to support its often advocated game-changer potential. It's against this backdrop that I spoke to Dr Christine Tesherbo, VP of Education Research at Pearson, about her findings on personalised learning. We spoke about her take on what exact practices form personalised learning and for each of these practices how learners, teachers and technology might work together to create a more individualised learning experience. Here's our catch up. This is a bit of a special recording because I'm actually here with Christine DeCerbo in person in Holborn at the Kingsway Hotel on an early a.m. on Friday. So we made it to the end of the week. Yay. (laughs) And this episode's all about personalized learning. So what does an evidence-based approach to personalized learning look like? In the last weeks of 2017, the concept of personalized learning have gone through some interesting evolution. So I noticed that uh, for example, on the EdSurge podcast, math blogger Dan Mayer and EdSurge columnist Mary Jo Madder were questioning the core assumptions around personalized learning with math, for example. But I wanted to kind of get into a little bit about the various interpretations of what personalized learning is. So first up, what's personalized learning in your view, Kristen? You're absolutely right to say that there's a lot of question about what people mean by personalized learning. <laughs> Essentially, as I see it, it is tailoring instruction to the individual needs, values, and interests of a particular student. So that can mean a lot of different things. It can mean that we use technology to help support that and to scale that, but it can also mean that it's the student driving their own choices and bringing their own agency into the learning process. And it can mean that the teacher or the instructor in the classroom is thinking about how to adjust instruction for a particular student. As I understand that you've done a bit of research around this, that being your your role as well and with that of your team. But before we get into sort of the practices that research show sort of uphold the best practice in, in personalized learning, what's the evidence behind personalized learning and how it's actually sort of a positive step for education as well? It's interesting because as with many things we see in education, sometimes the the hype starts to outpace the evidence that we have. So there's been just recently some new efforts to pin down the evidence for personalized learning. Um, The RAND Corporation came out with a a big report that looked at the effectiveness of personalized learning generally. But the biggest thing that stood out to me in that report was they actually listed the effects by the different schools. So they they looked at a whole bunch of different schools that were implementing personalized learning. And the effects went from quite positive to actually seeing some negative effects for personalized learning. And so 
to me, just taking then the average and saying, oh, this is the effect of personalized learning really covers up a lot of that variability. And so I think what we need to look at when we start talking about evidence is, well, what are those things that the schools that were successful were doing? And what were those things that the schools were weren't as successful were doing? So we can think about, again, starting to dive into what are the pieces of personalized learning that do impact in a positive way that we want to implement? And what are maybe the parts of the personalized learning that we've tried and don't make as much of a difference and we don't use them and we can kind of abandon those? So Kristen, you were telling me about some of the practices that make personalized learning perhaps more beneficial than, you know, if we just have a go at it, essentially. Yeah, so I think that we can use what we know from education research already to think about what practices do we know are effective and what are the ones that really help us individualize instruction. So if we think about feedback, for example, we know from decades of research that giving students immediate feedback or or feedback at the appropriate time is really important for learning. So from a personalization perspective, we can think about how do we make sure we're really tailoring that feedback to that particular student in that particular context. Um, and think about how we adapt some of these practices that we know to be effective uh, to more individualizing that instruction for students. And we spoke also about, you know, how do you scale that? Because then if, you know, if I'm giving feedback to you and it's very personalized and, you know, I've got 30 kids in my class or more, you know, how do you actually make that effective without it being a complete drainer on the teacher as well? Really, the the ability to scale this idea of personalization has been historically, I think, the the kind of barrier to doing it. it was how can you do it for very many students, and it it has to be technology that enables it. That's the way I think that we can really break through that issue of scale. So we can think about now with artificial intelligence that I know you've touched on in past podcasts and thinking about how we can bring some of the elements of a human tutoring experience into our technology, thinking about what are the key elements of feedback. So identifying what are those pieces that we need then to tailor it to the student. Is it being knowledgeable about not just their current performance, but their past performance, also potentially bringing in their goals and where we know they want to get to so we can provide the feedback in a way that's personal to them. Okay. And so that's the feedback side of it. And are there any other categories that people should look out for as well? There certainly are. We can actually think about examining kind of the whole teaching and learning cycle. So if you think about uh, starting off with a teacher of determining what the student's needs are um, and thinking about using technology potentially to be able to gather and store that information about students, not just achievement, but goals and interests and, and information about, you know, behaviors and all of that to help um, the teacher have access to information about all of their students. Because even the best teacher, once you get, uh, you know, beyond 20 students or so, it's really hard to keep all of that information um, mentally. So thinking about determining students' needs, we can certainly think about student profiles and using technology to help uh, teachers track and create those. Then we can think about if you, now that we know what the students' needs are, planning instruction. And so starting to, again, think about what are the activities that teachers are going to design and build that help personalize learning. So we often talk about this idea of low threshold and high mm-hmm. ceiling tasks. And those are activities where students can access them at various levels of achievements. So thinking about planning those activities. And then finally, in delivering them, we get to 
things like um, adaptive testing so that students can take fewer assessment items mm -hmm. but we can still get good information about what they're doing. So all of those kind of together uh, can help us build technology that, that personalizes the experience. But what are the cases against personalised learning? The recent Education Week article I mentioned previously listed the three cases against personalised learning as... Argument 1. The hype outweighs the research. The evidence base is very weak at this point. Indeed, a 2017 report by Silicon Schools, a major investor in personalised learning, stated in its opening paragraphs, We do not believe that there is yet definitive proof that personalised learning works better than other models. Ultimately, we hope that personalised learning will improve life outcomes for students with clear evidence to support its efficacy. In the interim, we look to traditional academic measures to provide early signs of the efficacy of personalised learning. Argument 2. Personalised learning is bad for teachers and students. The modularization of personalised learning can take away the agency of students and teachers. There is a disconnect between the type of self-directed, passionate learning envisaged in Todd Rose's The End of Average and the recognition of more social, dynamic learning outside of screen time. Argument 3. Big tech plus big data equals big problems. When Facebook promises personalization, it's really about massive data collection, says Audrey Waters of Hack Education. A layman's understanding of big data and machine learning recognizes the need for more information in to improve automated services out. In this new social contract where data is the currency, we have seen the limitations from everything to how cryptocurrency rallies to how elections are won by online profiling. But what are the implications of this with student data? So, Identifying what personalised learning is and measuring its effectiveness is still a work in process. Working out what role the student software and teacher have is still in development. And working out how much data we should supply, by when and to whom is still in the balance. So, personalised learning definitely still is a work in development. Yet the idea of being able to do things at your own pace certainly seems reasonable. I've been at once frustrated by not being able to get ahead in certain learning situations whilst feeling anxious at not quite grasping a concept in others. But limited collection of impact evidence, the collection of big data and the role of computers and teachers still needs finessing and to be considered in detail by educators and administrators. Here's Kirsten again. With all this research now, is this kind of currently embedded in existing personalised learning techniques and technologies or is it something that's going to sort of come on, come online in 2018, 2019? I think it's still the future in many mm -hmm. cases. And I think there's a couple of things that as we're building that future, we need to be thinking about. One is the balance between the technology and the teacher and the student and who's making the decisions, who's, you know, what is the balance between who's deciding what to do next? And does the technology just make recommendations or does it actually guide the instruction? Does the teacher make recommendations? How much control does the student have? So I think there are still questions to be answered as we are moving forward. And we're not quite there yet, uh, but we're certainly on the, on the path right now. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's always the debate, isn't it? The balance between those three. You mentioned there's more research to be done. Can you elaborate a little bit more on, on what that might look like? Yeah, one way that helps me think about organizing all of the <laughs> myriad of questions that we might be asking um, is to kind of think of them in groups. And so I often think if we're going to personalize learning, we kind of need four building blocks of personalization. So one is we need 
what I think of as the map of where the student wants to go. So if you can imagine the uh, map, there's many different paths to get to a certain destination and any particular student might be on a different path, but you have to have some sense of what that map looks like. And so that in research is understanding the knowledge and skills and how students develop those knowledge and skills. What, you know, what are the paths that students go on to come to an understanding of whatever topics we're interested in? Um, second, you need what, to continue the metaphor, would be the you are here stamp, which is understanding where the students are right now. And so that really involves a lot of uh, assessment, which doesn't have to be formal and scary in tests, um, but some indication to know what are the students' current knowledge and skills and interests and all of that. From there, we need to know, all right, how do we move the student Forward? How does the student move themselves forward so that um, they can make progress on that path? Um, and then finally, the, the fourth one really we can think about as maybe in this metaphor is Siri, the, uh, the guidance uh, to the student of how to get there. So I think each of those areas has research questions in it, but are the kind of blocks we need to individualize the path for a student. And from a researcher's perspective, where is personalized learning really taking off? So where are you seeing this actually being embedded in a, in a very interesting way? Yeah, I think the first places we've seen it have been in intelligent tutoring systems. Um, and so in some ways, those have done a good job at um, the, some of the points, like creating a, a profile of the student's achievement and then delivering particular activities or problems that are in a good place at the right level for that student. They've been good at that. Um, what they haven't been as good at sometimes is actually uh, including uh, more about the student than just their achievement. Uh, second, allowing the student to have some agency in terms of what they're doing. And then um, third, some of the instructional practices, intelligent tutors, continue to be, well, if you don't get it right, we'll keep asking you that question. <laughs> you can give me the same calculus question over and over, and I'm still not going to be able to solve it. So we need to think a little bit more. And when I was talking about those building blocks on that third one of how do we move the student ahead uh, more effectively? But what does personalized learning look like to an educator? Is it really about the software? I spoke to a teacher and school leader in the UK to find out what personalized learning meant to him. Here's Richard Fulford, Head of Science at the Latmer School in the UK and current user of TASAME, an adaptive learning programme designed to boost students' performance in science exams. I couldn't help but notice that Richard got an exemplary score on Rate My Teachers with a testimonial, he's actually really nice, get on his good side and actually try and he'll really like you. Today's all about personalised learning. So first question, what does personalised learning mean to you? Okay, so I, I think personalised learning has a sort of spectrum of terms. For me, it's not not necessarily about one teacher providing 32 separate lesson plans and different activities for for students, which it, it's been interpreted that way in, in, in some schools, some institutions, that it really must be completely personalised where no two students have the same uh, learning experience. Uh, I think it's a little bit to dial back from that. Um, some of the earlier definitions of personalised learning were a bit better. Uh, I think just where a teacher uh, understands the needs of a student, responds to them, um, be that through giving them a different worksheet or just spending some time reinforcing some ideas for them, checking they've understood it, making sure that if their example, I mean, it's a trite example, but a sort of 
uh, English as an additional language student, making sure they can access the question, making sure they've got whatever they need in order to sort of understand the, the point you're trying to make. Um, and then the progress is largely governed by how well the students do on those things, how quickly they move on uh, to other things. And those are all done as a response from the teacher to the student. I think it might be slightly easier to say what personalised learning isn't and it's not going on to the, the sort of shared area for your department, pulling off um, presentation number five, standing at the front and clicking through the slides. I think um, that's that's the opposite and that's what it was in, it designed, I feel, to eradicate as teaching where we should be more responsive. Um, sometimes I feel people have taken it slightly too far in terms of this extreme individual differentiation, which is incredibly, I mean, it would be wonderful, be absolutely wonderful if it were possible, but I don't feel that that's the, the wisest use of a teacher's time to, to plan 32 different lessons six times a day. Um, I don't think that's what it is either. I think it sits somewhere in the middle being teaching, which is responsive uh, to the needs and abilities of the, of the student so that they can make as, as much progress as possible. So based on that, I mean, you, you mentioned before you've moved schools sort of within the last two years. When did you start to develop sort of personalised learning techniques as you take them? Um, and how did you go about implementing that as well? Okay, so a lot of a lot of it happened in sort of the last two or three years at, uh, at the school I was at in Kent. We abandoned setting for science at GCSE and we're going to more towards more mixed ability, which meant that people would make very different progress throughout a lesson based on ability and you couldn't have a one-size-fitting-all approach, if you ever could. But, I mean, we, we sort of, as a school, as a leadership group, sort of tried to move away from this sharing of resources so that you could make more personalised stuff. Now, it's very difficult if you're a new member of staff or an, an NQT who hasn't yet established a sort of array of strategies that work for different things for different students on different tasks but it was more suggesting a range of these things getting you to think about the students that you were going to be teaching and which ones would fit them best which ones could you just adapt and we went as a, as a group in science and across the school a, a big move away from this uh, there shouldn't be a set rock hard scheme of work that says in this sort of in this half hour in this lesson, you're going, to, you're going to be doing this activity, which is what some heads of departments still dream of, this sort of very tightly governed um, approach to a, a scheme of work that will be followed through at, uh, at a specific rate. It sounds like so, this sort of Gina Ford of, uh, of teaching and learning. No, it's a very... <laughs> Pre planning minute by minute. Yeah, it's that idea of sort of over, over planning. Yes, you've got to plan for disruption perhaps in your schools, You've got a plan for other people going faster. It's not necessarily having a set plan for them, but being able to respond to them with some ideas and how to stretch them. So not individual tasks to extend them, but strategies that you can sort of ask more difficult questions of to spark more sort of high-level conversations or higher-level questions. If you again, if you've got a bank of resources that you know, oh, that book's got that difficult question on that, or the, the student's struggling with the maths bit, I've got that over there. Again, I do feel that it's, it's very difficult and something you need time to build up so that you can personalise it. You've got to have a, a range of tasks to do it. But that was, what we, that was really where we started, differentiating the lessons. I think the personalised learning bit, we moved to a bit of IT to do, really, in science, the extreme personalisation. And, and what was the IT that you used to sort of take on that part of the task? 
So we used a bit of software called Tassimai within Science. It covers a lot of factual content of the of the specifications that we were using, and it's a it's multiple choice. So it, it hits sort of assessment objective one, which is knowledge and understanding, and it does that in a truly adaptive way that I don't think a teacher would be able to do uh, for homework. We used that as sort of fifty percent of our homework was for students to go on, log in, click through some multiple choice questions, which. If you got a question right, broadly speaking, the questions on that topic got harder and they, that topic was revisited less frequently. If you got a question on that topic wrong, the questions got easier and they uh, were sort of repeated or you saw that topic more often in your quizzes, by which point mm. no, one, no one was doing exactly the same as everyone else. Everyone was getting completely personalised differentiated online continuous assessment homework. Uh, and that, that was really quite nice to be able to set not necessarily personalised learning lessons completely, but but certainly personalised homework. That was that was very nice. Students responded quite well to that. So that's quite interesting. So this sort of personalised aspect of what you're doing, to, to some extent, where it does become more adaptive, was in the homework setting. So that brings on to the next question, really, which was considering personalisation or personalised learning. What do you think the role of the teacher is? Because there's been some criticism that, you know, it can lead to sort of silent classrooms or students sat in front of banks of computers. So it's quite interesting to see your take on, you know, how you're using it and and where you're also not using it. Yes, I think it's very useful in providing sort of assessment data, formative assessment data to allow you to, to move on. Would I introduce a topic by sitting people down and getting them to click through multiple choice questions on on a new topic? No, I wouldn't. I would sort of use more, I suppose, traditional ideas of that. They've got to get the information somehow. Again, you get a choice as a teacher as to whether you're going to deliver that by by some amazing immersive game that you read about on tests that someone's invented, whether you go through it on the board in a traditional way or whether you've got sort of smaller chunk tasks to do it again you've you've got a multiple toolkit available but I I wouldn't necessarily use that completely personalized approach because that means you're going back to this sort of 32 lesson plan thing so yes you're going to have different ways of of explaining and introducing a topic but you might not know until the lesson how they're going to respond I can tell you that one group will take to one activity really well and you'll repeat it with your next year 10 group and it will go appallingly Um, (laughs) there isn't there isn't a set formula for um, this will work uh, with your students at this time. Are you changing how you teach based on the time of the day, for example? Do I teach differently Friday afternoon to Tuesday morning? Uh, yes, I probably do. Again, is that personalised to me as a teacher? I, I'm just sort of spitballing ideas there. But no, I wouldn't necessarily use software to introduce a topic. You could get them to log on to an online textbook if you think so. the textbook is the best method at that point, if you think they've got a really nice page on it certainly but um to you to use the i said to use the personalized learning all the time it sort of depersonalizes it yeah it's interesting so there's there's a kind of software development side of things and then there's the actual personalized approach to teaching that teachers deploy every day of the week i suppose and being adaptive to what's going on in the classroom in front of you yeah, the, the idea of, sort of adaptive teaching, is adaptive teaching personalised learning? Is it all good differentiation? Is it good assessment for learning in the classroom? I don't know if personalised learning just turned out to be good teaching, <laughs> um, whereby you respond to the needs of the students in front of you and, and help them make progress. At, at one end of the spectrum, I think that possibly is what was meant by personalised learning, just responding to the people in your class and helping them move forward in whatever way that is. 
I suppose one differentiation of those two ideas is the role of data. For example, in many of the what are deemed as truly personalized learning platforms, there would be some form of uh, machine learning or AI to, to understand the data points of students and respond accordingly. So I don't know to what extent with the personalized learning systems that you've used, there's that role of data and also how you kind of manage that. Because obviously, to some extent, the more data you have, the more personalized and adaptive a system can be. But, you know, the other area around it is to what extent we are comfortable with that. So I just wondered your thoughts on on uh, what you've experienced there. Um, that's an interesting one from being a classroom teacher right the way up to dealing with data on a, on a leadership level. You can certainly get, gather data on free school meals, ethnicity, uh, literacy level, any SEN you've got. Um, however, the, the profile you build in your Excel spreadsheet of joy may um, <laughs> may not really equal the person that you see on a on a, on a Thursday lunchtime. That's, again, the, the the data is fine, but you you as a teacher have got to sort of have an understanding of your student beyond beyond the spreadsheet, regardless of the subgroups that they fall into. They may just be a well behaved student. They may be a badly behaved student who you need to work with. Uh, behavior is very rarely recorded in any sort of data that's there. There's another another viewpoint is, do I need any data other than their progress so far? As a teacher, do I teach everyone the same just based on their understanding at this point? If they're making slower progress, is there something I can do? Is it an EAL student who's, we've had students who have sort of come in from Afghanistan with two months of spoken English and they're going to need some sort of literacy help to access things. Yes, that's helpful to know. I wouldn't get that information just by looking at their last test score. That is quite helpful to know if you're going to put anything in place like that, which again, differentiation is, is personalizing it to an extent. Um, my other big thing on data is you can have all, all as much as you like in terms of school school processed data and st- test results, grade boundaries on your last last test, how they're doing in your sort of scheme of assessment. How do you know how good it is? What is, what's your test for this? Were, were they in the last group that sat the test? Have four people told them what's in it beforehand? Is what you're is what you're seeing in the spreadsheet wholly reliable? Are you gambling if you're planning a lesson based on it? So I think that the, the amount of data that's available needs a degree of skepticism might be the wrong word, but a, a degree of to personalised context. Actually knowing the the person that you're going to be teaching that's often more valuable than knowing of their reading age when they were 12 or, or, or something on those lines. That's very interesting. And would you have any tips for other SLT listeners on you know, how to embed an effective personalised learning approach? I know that can mean different things to different people in different schools, but making sure that you're aware of those contexts that you mentioned there, as well as just deploying the sort of the ed tech that might enable it from a from leadership but when you're working with departments that you're responsible for i think they need to have access to to the data so they can start looking at potential trends and people that need more support i think from an intervention level certainly that data needs to be shared with them so you can put in place support to to help the students who are identified as as underperforming for whatever reason and then in terms of a, a teaching point of view just Checking with your, your head department and then even going to the, the teachers in the classroom, perhaps, again, 
this might the, the darker side of leadership is do you always trust what you're being told by your head of department oh yeah yeah we're, we're, we're doing doing the personalized learning uh, how how are you doing that it's sometimes a bit harder to ask those questions of the people that you're working with but uh, show me the evidence let's go let's go for a learning walk what am i going to see am i going to see the personalized learning what does it look like to you ask them in meetings what what does personalized learning mean to you is it the same as those 10 guys thought it meant at the SLT meeting on Tuesday or whatever is your message is what they think personalized learning the same as you. And again, ask, do the teachers have a bank of resources or are they going in with one thing? If you're in a, in a school that demands lesson planning, if you're looking at those lesson plans, how prescriptive are there? How much flexibility is there to respond to students in that from a work scrutiny perspective, especially in science that there can be notes, is are all the students' books the same? If so, your learning's not not personalised. Don't get me wrong; students may be making outstanding progress, and if they are, uh, that's that's important. But if they're all all looking the same, there's likely to be some people who could make more, and some people who are making less, but they're just covering it with sort of note copying. So that those are those are some of the ways to sort of ensure that those just monitoring that it's going on. And again, <laughs> go back to basics: just talk talking to students student voice, talking to staff, what would you do if, uh, if this situation happened? CPD sessions on how you can respond to, to things going wrong in a lesson or students not understanding something in a question. I think one of the things we've really focused on at Latimer is not focusing on the activities people are doing, but making sure they're, they're sort of getting the objectives there and however they get there is how they get there. You're just you're just there to respond to them in lessons, not force the next activity on because that's what you said you were going to do with 20 minutes left of your lesson. Seeing people adapt and respond to to students is is much more progress making and much more sort of assuring from an educational point of view than the lesson plan being followed. Final question: Is there a person, place, and/or a project that has had an impact on your thinking? So that can be in relation to this, or just in relation to, you know, how you approach uh, education more generally. I suppose. Uh, interesting. Well, I was sort of thinking thinking about this, and and I'd, I'd done it in a personalised learning context. So I think there's 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 two people that have amazed me in terms of personalised learning. One was a, a deputy head that I worked with. Uh, as a maths teacher with a, an incredible encyclopedic knowledge of about the seven different textbooks of questions she could use at any one point. So she was able to walk into a room and say, you're going to do these questions, you're going to do these questions, you're going to do these questions based on your homework and just sort of knew in, instinctively was able to help those students work on their areas of uh, development just by sheer knowledge of uh, the resources she had it was quite quite impressive to walk in and 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 see that happening again that wasn't necessarily planned in terms of writing it down doing it she was just able to do it instinctively um i I guess one of the sort of natural born teachers with a a wide repertoire and a a good experience of, of different question styles that was incredibly impressive to watch uh, and the other one i would have to say is the sometimes the creators and programmers of these things so uh, as a school, we've worked with we've worked with Tassimai to try and work out how they how they do things and produce the data for us on where students are. So I suppose some of the guys there, Dan and Murray Morris, uh, Murray Morrison, designing the algorithms, the adaptive learning stuff. That's really quite admirable. That's that's inspiring and hopefully 
if a uh, school continues to teach coding and, and maths as well as some of them do, where the next generation are going to sort of uh, eat and drink online, really, sort of this self-adaptive ed tech is, uh, is really quite powerful. So those are the, the projects I admire, being able to provide staff with massive amounts of data, not on their background, but on their abilities in certain areas so we can, we can help them out as much as we can do. And uh, if people are listening in, Richard, and they would like to connect with what you're doing and, and follow your work, are you on Twitter or is there any other way to keep track of what you're up to? I do have a, do have a LinkedIn in profile, uh, which is just uh, Richard Fulford, and you'll be able to find me, find me on there. But there's also, there's also a little bit of a website, so I'm part of the uh, Enfield Teaching Schools Alliance, working with some other schools in Enfield and in other London boroughs. And we, we sort of update the website with what we've been doing there. Failing that, the, the Latimer School Twitter account is uh, always rife with, with updates <laughs> and teach, teaching and learning news. Uh, but I suppose those are the, those are the main ways of uh, getting in contact. Thanks, Richard. That's the end of this week's episode. Thank you to all this week's guests and do join us next week to hear about the power of co-creating educational games. Want to leave feedback? Tweet us at Podcast EdTech and at Christine DeSherbo or check out the Pearson podcast page at tinyurl.com forward slash Pearson Future Tech, where you can also find more content reports and insight. I'll drop that link, show notes and more at the edtechpodcast.com. Throughout human history, one of our big successes has been the development of more and more technology. The AI-based design company seems to be at a distinct disadvantage. And that what is an application of skills and knowledge at a moment in time? What should the humans do versus what should you let technology do? We are so trained to fear AI. They have enormous computing resources and the latest AI technology on their side. So as educators, we have to stop and say, How do we approach this? It's so cool that we can get students to engage with computations and so on. Everybody's got to be in a learning business. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more on AI, languages, gaming, assessment without tests and personalised learning, make sure you subscribe to the EdTech Podcast on iTunes, where you can also leave a review. Thanks for listening in and we look forward to hearing your own future tech for education related stories.